Well, good morning, church. Good morning morning to two or three of you at least. Uh, The rest of you, not so sure. But uh, good morning. So good to be with you. Uh, If we haven't met, my name's Paul, and I'm the teaching pastor here at LifePoint Church. Uh, Thankful that you made it here safely this morning. Again, so good uh, to see everybody. Happy New Year. Uh, Merry Christmas. All of the things. Um, so today, uh, we are kicking off a brand new series, and so if you're a guest maybe this morning, or maybe it's the, the first or second time you've been here, so thankful that you've chosen to check things out. I would ask if you are newer, um, if you haven't yet, uh, take a point at some point uh, throughout the morning, and if you would be so kind as to fill out a digital guest information card, there's QR codes on front of you on the chairs, hopefully anyway, uh, scan that. Uh, we'll donate $5 in your honor to one of our partner ministries if you would do that, so we would love uh, for that to happen. I would also, um, uh, again, just say that there's a variety of ways to get plugged in, get connected here at LifePoint, and again, that's sort of step one. Uh, So today, the the series we're going to be in over the next five weeks is one called Broken Mirrors, okay? Broken Mirrors. And so what we're going to do in this series is we're going to use Hebrews chapter 11, okay? If you're not familiar with the book of Hebrews, It is a New Testament book in the Bible, uh, which means that it was written after the life, death, and resurrection, and then ascension into heaven of Jesus, okay? And so it was written uh, in a New Testament context, and as the name would suggest, the book of Hebrews, it is written to uh, Hebrews, uh, which are people who would have had a, a Jewish descent, who would have been followers of Judaism, okay? And it's written to them, and these people would have been converted to Christianity. And the reason this book is written to them is really to encourage them, to encourage them to keep the faith. Now, why do they need encouraged? Well, a lot of reasons. Um, There were real consequences to following Jesus for these early Christians, significant consequences. If you were a follower of Judaism and then you decide to convert to Christianity and following Jesus, it's likely that much of, if not all of your family, has now disowned you. It's likely that you've lost your inheritance. It's likely that your land has been removed from you, perhaps your businesses. Then the Roman Empire decides to start persecuting Christians. It's likely you're experiencing persecution, following Jesus, while it is the greatest thing we can ever do, and it brings us the most joy than anything, and it it, guarantees us an inheritance in heaven, following Jesus is hard. It's hard to put sin to death. It's hard to make difficult sacrifices. And for these early, early Christians, it was incredibly difficult. And I think it brings up the question for us, does following Jesus impact our lives? Are there consequences to our acknowledgement that we are Christ followers, that we are Christians? Does it have an impact in our family dynamic? Does it have an impact in our relationships with friends? Does it impact anything in our life? Are there there sacrifices involved? Now, particularly to the context that we're going to be getting into, I said we're going to be using Hebrews 11. In many ways, Hebrews 11 is referred to as the hall of faith. Uh, All uh, sports have a hall of fame, right? The greatest athletes within that particular sport. The hall of faith, then is a collection of some of the greatest characters of faith throughout the Bible. And the reason the author of Hebrews is including this is to say, hey, look at these examples of faith and be encouraged. Be encouraged by the examples of faith of those who have become, come before you. Remain steadfast in the faith. Stay, stay strong in the faith. 
And again, that encouragement is for us. But here's the thing. As we read these stories, what we're going to see is that so often the people we read about are broken, messed up, jacked up people. Some of these stories are ugly. And that's the reason for this title, Broken Mirrors. See, the main big idea of this whole series is that that broken people reflect a perfect God. Broken as we are, sinful as we are, we still reflect God, imperfectly so, but through faith in Christ, we're able to glorify and honor God. So that's really the whole concept of this series. We're going to be using Hebrews 11 as a diving board, in a sense, to dive into the passages of the names that are referenced, okay? And so that's the context, that's what we're doing. And I will also say, each of these characters... We're going to be in this for five weeks, so five different characters are also going to teach us about one of our core values as a church. Okay, core values as a church. These are things that, that we would say, um, if you're going to follow Jesus, it's at least these five things. It's certainly not all these five things that I'm going to list are certainly not all that comes to following Jesus, but what we're going to see is that, that core values, these things that we live out, each week we're going to talk about one of them, and I'm just going to give you the core values now. So number one is gospel identity, then we have reaching priority authentic community, spiritual intimacy, and personal ministry. And we use an acronym called GRASP across all uh, six of our campuses, right? And so these are, these are things we're going to be talking about each week within this series in the context of Hebrews 11, saying what is it to follow Jesus? What is it to have an example of faith? And how do these core values, are they represented in my following of Jesus? Again, following Jesus is certainly more than these things, but it's probably not less than these things. And I'll explain what each of them means each and every week that we're in the text. And so, given that, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, you can also put a thumb in Genesis 4. Uh, we're going to be there pretty shortly. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get into the text, all right? Father, um, I'm grateful to be together this morning. I missed everybody last week, and so it's just a blessing to be here. It's a blessing that you've given us your word, God, and that it is living and it is active. And would you make it living and active to us this morning? As we read, would you open our minds and our hearts to understand Father, I need you this morning. Would you help me communicate and teach clearly what is a bit of a complicated text? So, Lord, glorify yourself in and through us. Thank you for the body of Christ gathered here in Marion this morning. Glorify yourself. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hebrews 11 begins with this, all right? Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation, By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. All right, so he starts out and he's giving us an explanation of what faith is. And the real focus of this this chapter 11, verse 2, he says, For by it, it being faith, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Okay, so what we can say here and what we can really try and understand is that this verse 2, by it faith, is really going to be the focus of the rest of this chapter. Now, he uses the word by it, they receive their commendation. And I'll be honest with you, I was reading this this week and I was like, I know what that word means, but I don't really know what that word means. Is there anybody else like, I have an idea, but I'm not really sure. Thanks for making me feel like we're connecting uh, this morning. Everybody stared at me blankly. Um, So here, I'm the only dummy in the room. That's okay. Uh, Commendation, I looked up the original language, and it has this Greek word, um, and I'm not going to try and say it because I'll butcher it. Um, But commendation means gained approval. Okay, And so what we can say is in, in Hebrews chapter 11, he's saying, by faith, the people of old 
gained the approval of God. By faith, they gained the approval of God. Now, specifically, not just faith in some things, specifically faith in Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, the people of old, throughout the Old Testament, through faith in who God is, and you can get into how they had faith in Jesus before Jesus' earthly ministry. We're not going to get into that today. But through faith, they pleased and, and had approval from God. And now, remember the context here. These people are suffering They're going through hardships. They're going through trials. And so then the author says, hey, keep the faith. Why? Because the most important thing in the universe, the most important thing in your life is your standing with God. It doesn't matter if you lose your property. It doesn't matter if you lose your family. It it ultimately, what matters the most is where are you with God? What is your standing with God? And the bad news that the scriptures would teach us is that apart from Jesus, you and me, we're all enemies of God. That's bad news. The good news of the Bible, we call it the gospel, is that through faith in Christ, we become friends of God, we become family members of God, we become brothers and sisters in Christ, co-heirs with Christ, okay? So he's saying, hey, look, all that's going on around you, focus on faith. And then what we're going to see in the rest of this chapter, he's going to list example after example after example to encourage these people to say, hey, remember that story? That was rough, but they had faith. Remember that story? Man, that was a really nasty situation, but they had faith. Stick to the faith. And so, let's look at the first story of faith we are given. Verse 4, it says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gift, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Okay? Now, that's it. That, that's all we get. And so it's like, okay, well, what do we do with that? Because there's not a lot of information there. And so we have to turn to Genesis chapter 4 because that's where we get this story. And so again, if you have uh, a, a scripture with you, you can open to Genesis 4. We'll have it on the screens. We also have an app. You can follow along there. So Genesis chapter 4, we get the story that the author of Hebrews is then referencing. And so before we get into this, if you're familiar with this, the sort of story arc of Genesis, you'll know that in chapter 3, sin enters the world through the choice of Adam and Eve. They are then banished from the Garden of Eden and the presence of God at the very end of chapter 3. And then we pick up in chapter 4. And so the idea we get that is that this is just after they've left Eden, away from the presence of God, and here's what happens next. It says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Okay, so we're just going to pause right there, just a little bit of review, right? So again, Cain... And Abel, these are the first two born into the world. It's hard to sort of wrap our minds around that. That first it's just Adam and Eve, again, exit the Garden of Eden. Then they have uh, babies, and it seems that they're not twins. These are two different occurrences. They grow up. Cain becomes a, a farmer, essentially. Abel, he becomes a keeper of flocks. Maybe it's sheep, whatever, right? He, he becomes a, a keeper of animals. And then it says they both present offerings 
to God. Cain's is an offering of the fruit of the ground, Abel of the firstborn of his flock. And I think a decent question is, well, how did they know they were supposed to give an offering? I don't really know. Um, That's a great question. The Bible doesn't actually tell us. God doesn't give a clear instruction. But I think we can do a little bit of digging and understand why we offer things to God in the first place. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, God could have in that moment rightly and justly just destroyed them and killed them. I mean, after all, he did warn them. He says, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. That's the very thing that the serpent calls into question. And yet, they don't die in an instant. God allows them to live, but he removes the eternal nature of them. And they do it one day, decay, die, and return to dust. And so how does this connect to offerings? You see, offerings are a way that we acknowledge that we need God. And so Cain and Abel, producing these goods, producing crops, producing seeds, producing animals, and then cultivating them, them giving an offering is essentially an acknowledgement to say, God, everything that I have is ultimately because of you. God, the life, the breath in my lungs, it's ultimately because of you. These crops that I have, they're ultimately because of you. This, this sheep that I have, ultimately because of you. And the same is true for us. When we give to the Lord, what we're saying is everything I have, I am a steward, not an owner of. And I acknowledge, God, that the reason I have breath in my lungs, the reason I have intelligence to do a job, the reason I can create and generate income is ultimately because of the goodness and faithfulness of God. And so we acknowledge that by giving. Okay? And so that's what Cain and Abel seem to be doing here. They're acknowledging their need for God. And now we get to God's response in the second half of verse 4. It says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Now, that's a bit of a question. Okay, why, why does God have regard for Abel's offering, and why does he have no regard for Abel's offering. Well, we're going to have to dig into that a little bit and, and get further into it, but it's clear that he, he doesn't. And so um, we then get to the response, all right? So God says, hey, I, I see this. I appreciate Abel, but not Cain. So the text moves on at the second half of verse 5. It says, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And so here, God sees Cain's sort of fallen face, and he counsels him like a good father to say, hey, if you, like, no, it's okay. Like, you, you got a chance here. But then we get Cain's response. In his anger, the text carries on. Verse 8, it says, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. The story in so many ways just speaks to the evil of sin. First, they're brothers. The first two brought into the world as children and the older murders the younger. I think sometimes, again, we underestimate the brutality of sin and how it wants to destroy us and destroy others and have us destroy others. And so I think we have to to dig in here a little bit. Again, what what does this 
teach us about all the way back in Hebrews how Abel is an example of faith. Because again, if you're reading this, you're like, well, I didn't really get a lot of information, I don't think. So what, what does that mean? Well, I think in order to understand Abel, we actually first have to understand Cain and the response that Cain has to God being displeased with his offering. Do you remember what it was? Anger. Multiple times we see that Cain is angry. And we have to dig into that anger, I think, eventually to understand Cain. So we're going to go on a bit of a winding road. I know it might be tempting to fall asleep because it sounds like I'm rambling, but really we're going to get to a point, so stick with me. At least I hope we do. By the grace of God, we'll get to a point, okay? So, so what do we do here? Well, I think it's helpful to understand that with Cain, anger and us, anger is a secondary emotion. Think about that. Anger is a secondary emotion. Social psychologists would, would agree with this and say anger, yes, it's a secondary emotion, meaning... When we feel other things, anger is often a response. There's roots. Anger is a fruit. Okay? So for example, if you are someone and you get embarrassed, and when you get embarrassed, you get angry, what that actually reveals is that deep down there's probably an identity issue because embarrassment sort of makes people see you in a certain way and you can't handle that. And so instead of being vulnerable and saying, yeah, I've got identity issues, you lash out in anger. Anger is a self-protection mechanism. We are a people who love justice, whether we want to admit it or not. And so if somebody comes up and punches you in the face, right, our natural anger response is justice and to punch them back, right? It's a, no, I want justice, so I'm going to, I'm going to harm you back, right? If we have, again, some, some sort of a relationship where we are emotionally harmed, sometimes our response is, I'm going to reject that person out of anger, again, as a self-protection mechanism. This is actually a really, really important insight for, for uh, parents with young children. If your child punches your other kid, I'm sorry, it's very violent this morning. Um, if your child, not that, I would, not that my kids would ever do this, throws a book at your, your, their little brother's head uh, or something like that, right? The, the, there's something underneath. There's something underneath the surface that's going on. In your marriage, if your spouse is consistently anger and anger is a secondary emotion, what's going on under the surface? Critical questions that we have to answer. And so, speaking of under the surface, what's going on under the surface for Cain? Why the anger response? To answer that, I really do believe the Bible answers it. We, we go back to verse 1 of chapter 4. Look at this with me. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It's sort of an interesting response. And if you look into the meaning of the name Cain, the meaning of the name Cain is gotten one or acquired one. Okay? And so literally Cain sounds like the phrase gotten one in, in the original language. And so then that actually connects back to the curse that God gives after sin enters the world. And this is the point where it can get confusing. So lock in with me, if you will. All the way back in Genesis 3, soon after Adam and Eve sin, God comes, of course, he knows. And before he delivers the curse upon mankind, that it would, the ground would be hard and, and that, that they would return to dust and all of these things, God first curses the serpent, who is Satan, who tempted Adam and Eve into sin. And we see that in verse 15 of Genesis 3. God speaking to the serpent, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now imagine the situation for a moment. You're Eve. 
And, and God is saying, serpent, there's going to be enmity, enmity or hatred between you and the offspring. And, what, and Eve's like, well, I'm the only woman here, so I guess that my son, if I have one, I don't really know how that works, and this serpent are not going to like each other. And then God says, hey, there's going, that, 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 that serpent, you're going to bruise the heel of the offspring, but the offspring is going to crush your head, serpent. And so again, taking this sort of in a wooden or, or rigid interpretation, what it seems to be here is that Eve thinks, when I have a son, he's going to crush the serpent's head. Right? When I have a son, he's going to be the one who, who crushes the serpent's head. Yes, the serpent is going to bruise his heel. It might kill him. But importantly, the, the serpent is going to be crushed. And that might mean that we get to end this curse and we get to enter back into Eden. And so what we can see here, I think, is that Eve's expectations for Cain or that her firstborn will be the serpent crusher who returns mankind to Eden. Because when she says in in chapter 4, verse 1, I have gotten a man, what she's saying is I have acquired the man who will be the serpent crusher who will end the curse. Are you tracking with me? Right? And, And here's the thing. Words have power. Imagine your cane, and for your entire life, what you have been told you're the chosen one. You're Cain. Your, your name means acquired one. Every time, like Cain, acquired one, the one that mom has gotten. She says these words, literally. He grows up thinking, yep, I'm it. I'm the dude. I'm the serpent crusher. I don't know how it's going to happen. I'm going to beat the enemy. Everything's going to be okay. I've got this, mom and dad. Time and time again. Because again, words have power. If your parents spoke to you in a way and they said, you're so creative, I bet you're creative. If your parents said to you, you're so smart, I bet you thought you were smart. If your parents said, man, I I love what you do about this. Children soak in words from their parents like a sponge, and often the words parents we speak to our children become self-fulfilling prophecies. And that is true in the positive sense, but tragically it's also true in the negative sense as well. And so then if we look at Abel, we see actually the negative sense too. Dig in here. Again, remember, I'll just reread verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Yes! Verse 2, and again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep. Did you see that? Nothing. It's not like, yes, I got another one. Not like, thanks God, appreciate this, this is great. Nothing. She bore a son, they named him Abel. Now Cain was a keeper of, of whatever, whatever Abel was this. And it gets worse when you dig into, once again, the original meaning. If you look up into the original context, the word Abel, it actually means hebel or hevel. That might be familiar from the Ecclesiastes series. So Abel, the, mean, the meaning of the name Abel is the same word as the author of Ecclesiastes uses over and over again when he says vanity of vanities. What that means, church, this is it, this is the moment here, is that Cain and and Abel, their names mean entirely different things. Cain's essentially means the Savior, and Abel essentially means worthless. Nothing. Vanity of vanities. It's like they got son number one. Here's it. Here's the dude. Son number two, we actually don't really need you. We've already got number one. And again, just from the meaning of the names, the interpretation of the words, I think that is all There, the name Abel has a literal meaning of vapor or meaningless. Now again, imagine how these two grew up. The dude and, why are you here again? It's just evil, isn't it? It's like sad, it sort of hurts your heart. It's like, how could you name your son like vapor, meaningless? 
What's wrong with you people? Sin is like Adam and Eve, man. They really, I've really been angry with them this week. But like for multiple reasons. Um, and so then, I know we're sort of winding our way here through here. We're, we're tying back to the offerings, okay? Tying back to Cain's anger response. And then, Lord willing, answering the question, why is Abel's offering an acceptable offering? You see, when Cain offered, the, the text says, says this, right? Um, in verse 3, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought uh, of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. So Cain's fruit of the ground, the idea we, we get here is that Cain grows some crops, he harvests the crops, he has bounty and plenty, and then he takes a portion of that bounty and the plenty already that he has, and he goes up to God and he says, Hey God, I appreciate that I have breath in my lungs. Here's my offering. I'm it, remember, just I'm the, I'm the chosen one. Okay, and then he goes on. Cain's offering is one of obligation to satisfy a religious requirement. He knew he was supposed to make this offering, but it was a surplus offering. It didn't cost him a thing. Why? Because Cain believed he didn't need a savior. Cain believed he was the savior. And so if you believe you are the Savior, that you do not need to be saved, you will treat the things of God with contempt and with a lighthearted nature. And it will turn into religion and duty, and you'll say, okay, I'm supposed to do that? Yeah, okay, whatever, whatever. It will not be desperation. It will be drudgery. Far different than the offering of Abel. Abel, the one who grew up his entire life thinking, I'm, yep, I'm the meaningless one, I'm the meaningless one, I get it, yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever. I, again, I'm, this is conjecture, but I would assume that family dynamic was not healthy. And again, I assume that because his brother literally murdered him. Um, and again, his, mean, his name is meaningless. But anyway, so he becomes a keeper of a flock. Again, we, we don't know exactly how many. And do you remember what he does? It says he gives of the, of the firstborn of his flock. Now think about that for a minute. This is the beginning of the world. It's not like you know the farmer down the street's got a bunch more. There isn't a farmer down the street. It's just you. And, and his flock comes together and they, they do the thing that they do and they multiply. Life happens. And then he takes the very firstborn of that flock. The firstborn would have represented Abel's moment. I'm going to have possession. I'm going to have property. I'm going to have wealth. I'm going to have power. All of this in the firstborn. Like, let's go. Finally, life is turning around. And what does he do? He kills them. How do we know that? Well, it says he gave of their fat portion. You can't give us something fat portion if it's still living unless you really maim it in a gross way, right? So he kills the firstborn and he, of his flock, and, and it seems to indicate plural, right? Maybe some goats, some sheep. He gets all of the firstborn of the flocks and he says, here you go, God. And what that reveals is that Abel's offering is one of faith and desperation to save his soul. Because what he's saying to God is, everything that I can control Everything that I have is a possession. Everything that is quote-unquote mine, I am sacrificing it and I am giving it to you, God, because I am not it. I actually know that I'm not the Savior. I know that I need a Savior. And so Cain or Abel has that heart to say, I'm in desperate need of a Savior, and so I'm going to give you everything, God. And God sees these two offerings, Cain's offering of abundance and pride, frankly, 
Abel's offering of humility and desperation. He says, that's the offering I want. Get the pride, get everything away from me. I want the humble offering of desperation that proves you need me. His life isn't easy, though. He literally gets murdered after that. But here's, here's the beautiful thing. God says, Cain, Abel's voice still speaks. Abel still has life even after death. Earlier I said we're going to talk through our core values in the context of these passages. And our first core value as a church, really the one that everything else we do in the Christian life must flow out of, is the core value of gospel identity. Gospel identity means that we are undeniably flawed, yet unbelievably loved. Here's what I mean that, by that. When we understand that we are undeniably flawed, it means we have an acknowledgement that we are, in a sense, worthless. It's like, don't say that to me. Look, on our own. Like, that's a strong statement. We are valuable, of course, in the sense that God created us in his image, that he desired to place life in us. He desired to place you in this context. You are incredibly valuable. You are made in God's image. Beautiful. And yet, apart from faith in Jesus, your life will end and you will spend eternity separated from God. And isn't that meaningless? See what I'm saying there? And we have to understand, again, that we have sin, we have flawed, we are undeniably flawed, and yet, because of Jesus, it is the clearest answer possible that we are unbelievably loved, that God valued you and you and you and you enough that he would go to the cross, he would go be nailed to the tree, the very same tree that he spoke into existence, and he would be willing to be nailed to it so that you could be saved. That's how valuable you are to God. And he would die for you and, and offer you a new life. But we first have to come to this point to understand that we're undeniably flawed and that we desperately are in need of a Savior. But if we think we're it, if we think we're the one, if we think we can save ourselves, we can do all the right things, Religion can't save you. Jesus can. Religion and going through all the right practices and rituals cannot save you. You need a better Savior, a one who sacrificed and lived perfectly for you, who says, here is my righteousness on your account. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. But through faith, I give it to you anyway. Stunning. That's the gospel. It's amazing. So what do then we do with that? How do we, how do we be like Abel? And typically in church, here's where it comes. You need to give 100% of your money. To, just kidding, right? I'm not, not going to say that. I do think we have to give sacrificially, though. I, I really do. Right? Because what, what we're saying is, hey, everything that I have, like, I'm not going to trust my, my money and my possessions to save me. I want to I give them to God to say, Lord, do with this what you will. This, this really convicted both Maddie and I throughout this week, and we're like, we give, how can we actually give sacrificially? Isn't there a difference? How can we give to a degree that it's really uncomfortable and we're really trusting God to carry through? I think that's one very clear application from the text. For followers of Jesus in the room, I think another really, really clear application of the text is we need to take radical steps of faith. And of course, that looks like a lot of different things. The point is for us to say, God, I'm taking a step that is uncomfortable for me and that requires faith that you're going to catch me and that you love me and that you're going to carry me. 
For some of you, that, that's like a, a step of, of publicly sitting up here in the big silver tub we have and being baptized. That's a scary thing for some of us. I get that. I, I understand. It's like awkward and weird, whatever. Maybe that's your first step to say, no, I'm going to trust God to say, here I am. I am in need of a Savior. I trust Jesus, and I'm going to stand in front of the church and say, I belong to Jesus. Hello, praise God, amazing, hallelujah. Maybe for others of us, it's like, I, I have all of these gifts. This is really cool about being a Christian. The promise is that you've been given gifts by the Holy Spirit of God. Like, it's a guarantee. You have good works to do, and you are uniquely gifted and equipped to do those good works. And some of us are just sitting on like a pile of incredible talents and not using them for your good, for the benefit of the church, and for the glory of Christ. Taking a next step in faith is saying, God, how have you uniquely gifted me? How can I step into that to be a part of the work you're doing in me, around me, and therefore then through me? Some of us need to take a step in the, in the community. Again, these are very like church steps, but it's the reality. It's how we grow. We have life groups. Where we want you to step into those life groups and say, I need a people around me that know me, that can speak into my life, not out of judgment, but out of a genuine care for your soul, to want to shepherd you and know you and love you. It's a step of faith. Again, we could go on and on. I just want to throw Ben's email up here. Ben's a our campus life pastor. And so like next steps, whether it's baptism, connecting to a life group, serving on a life team. I know I've been beating the drum to an annoying degree that, hey, we need people on our life teams. We need people on our life teams. I know we have the bare bones skeleton to do two services and praise God, thank you so much for how you stepped up. But we actually still need more. Like if Brad gets sick one morning, I'm not sure what we're going to do. He's like the only person who plays guitar in Marion, I think. Right? So like, I, you know what I mean? Like we need people people to step in, step up, step out. In, in our kids, we, there's like, it's an endless loop of we act, there's more needs. You don't have to write curriculum. You don't have to do all these things. Like We can do that, but, but you're uniquely gifted. That's the point I'm trying to make. And then for some of us, maybe we're in the room and we don't yet have that personal relationship with Jesus. And I, I don't want you to leave the room without saying, I do need a Savior. I am undeniably flawed. I am broken. And again, the beauty of the gospel is not that God says, how dare you? It's he says, I know, that's why I died for you. And he doesn't want to shame you. He wants to transform you. And he wants to give you a new life to live. And so would you step into that? It's not magic words. It's a condition of the heart to say, I am a sinner. It's repentance to say, I want to turn away from the th things that don't glorify you and turn toward you, Jesus, trusting that your sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to save my soul. That's what it's about. Whatever your next step is, faith, faith for the first time, or being like Abel and taking radical steps of faith, I want to challenge us to take next steps this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful for the church, grateful for your word, grateful for stories like Cain and Abel that just challenge us. And God, I pray we would be challenged, that we would be confronted, but in a really good and healthy way, a gospel-centric way, Again, not a way that's full of shame and rigid rules and religion, but a way that is fueled through a relationship with Jesus. Say, Jesus, I just want you. I want to be closer to you. I want to be more obedient to you. I, I want to do the things that you command me to do. I want to live like you, Jesus. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fall short. But you, your grace is sufficient for me. <laughs> and I cling to that. 
And so, Lord, in the rest of our time as we sing and worship, would you press in on our hearts? Maybe some of us need to go back and be prayed for from our Next Steps team. Would you do the work in us? What's our next step? How can we be radical, obedient followers of you, Jesus? We need you. We love you. We trust you this morning. We praise you for this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.